may be seated. Before we go to our scripture reading, let us pray. Lord, our world fills our day-to-day lives with tweets, with posts, with sound bites and news clips. But Lord, we confess that our hearts need something more. We need something real, something meaningful. So we seek your truth this morning that it would nourish our lives. And we ask that your spirit illuminate your holy word for us in order that we may walk in your ways. Amen. Our passage this morning comes from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the other day I made the mistake, I make lots of mistakes, but this is just one of the many mistakes that I've made this week, (laughs) that day. Uh, But I made the mistake of flipping through the channels and starting a new show. And I kind of got hooked on it. I mean, y'all know what that's like. Well, the new show for me, it's not for a lot of people, but for me, is Shark Tank. Does anybody know Shark Tank, the show? Okay. It's been around for a number of years, uh, but I've never really watched it until, like I said, this week. So if you don't know the show, there's usually five sharks, and not like the sea ocean creature type sharks. These are sharks as in financial investors. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks and businessman, is is one of the sharks usually on the show. Well, in the show, these entrepreneurial startups, they come in and they pitch their their product, their, their business, their ideas, and they are ultimately looking for one of these five sharks to become an investor and to partner with them in their company and, and to try to, essentially what they're trying to do is trying to take their company, their little enterprise, to the next level. Well, the sharks, the five you know, wealthy, they use their own, own money and they invest in, in what they want. But the sharks evaluate the opportunity to see if it's something that they're interested in investing in or not. You know, But usually during the show, there's always this kind of point where they kind of start drilling the, the, the person, you know, requesting their their assistance and they want to see the facts they want to see the business model they want to see the numbers they want to see the plan they want to see with their own eyes 
the product? Does it work? Does this business have a future? And of course, you know, they're looking at it in money-making terms. Are they going to see a return on their substantial investment? Well, really, if any of us are going to buy into something, invest in something, we want to see it work with our own eyes. We want to see the numbers. We want to see the vision. We want to see the facts. We want some proof and assurance. If someone comes to us promoting some claim that, you know, it's something that seems too good to be true or it's just unlikely, we might say, well, prove it. Because that's what we want to see. We want to see some proof. You know, if our now middle-aged buddy says he can still do a standing backflip like he did in high school, we might look to him and say, prove it. We might have 911, you know, ready to call just in case, but if he says he can do it, well then, buddy, by all means, prove it. If you ever had that friend in elementary school that said he would eat a bug, you know, you might have said to him or her, I don't want to leave the, the girls out of this, prove it. If your own kid tells you that he or she might eat a bug, part of you might want to see them prove it, but hopefully there's a part of you that's like, mm, okay, let's step in here and stop this. Seeing is believing. We've all heard that phrase. Seeing is believing. And this idea is so common that we even have other phrases like it. I'll believe it when I what? see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Typically, we say this line when, you know, we're much more skeptical about the outcome. If a politician is making grand campaign promises, I'll believe it when I see it, right? If your kid tells you they clean their room without being asked, my response is, I'll believe it when I see it. It's always a struggle at our house. If uh, great aunt Martha is going to make it to the family lunch on time this time, I'll believe it when I see it. If, hypothetically, the Texas Rangers say that they're going to win the World Series this year, I would say, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm still going to root for them, but a little more skeptical, I guess. But we also have another phrase that has, you know, a sort of negative connotation like this. If someone refuses to believe something without proof, we might label them as a, as a doubting Thomas. The disciple, the apostle, Thomas. Poor guy. I, uh, I feel sorry for how history kind of remembers him. I feel bad for Thomas because, you know, I think if any of the disciples were to get a negative type of nickname, you know, what about betraying Judas? Or what about denying Peter? I mean, he denied Christ three times during his trial, and yet he would be remembered as, well, Peter, Petros, the rock. He wasn't acting much like a rock, you know, at that time. But doubting Thomas. Thomas doesn't get much airtime in the New Testament. Usually his name just appears alongside the list of other apostles, just kind of in the group. Um, but we have a few recorded times of him speaking in the gospel. He makes one short little comment uh, when Lazarus dies. But interestingly, he also speaks up in John chapter 14, 
So our passage today is from chapter 20. So backing up just a couple chapters to John chapter 14, where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, giving him, giving them his last words before he would be arrested and, and tried and, and crucified. But this particular part that includes Thomas is included in a famous passage. It's the passage where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be trouble, troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, here's our man, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what laid ahead of him and also for them. And Jesus knew that troublesome waters were stirring and the storm was about to hit. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe. Have faith. Faith is a key component. Faith as, as trust, as comfort, as strength. Faith as assurance. Faith as hope. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then Jesus continued, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And our beloved Thomas speaks up. He's like, actually, Jesus, I mean, come again now? What are you talking about? What's happening? We just got to Jerusalem. I didn't know there was more traveling involved. Where's this house that you're talking about going to? Where are we supposed to go? Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I mean, is there possibly some kind of map you can give us? Something, you know, we can see. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, for us, we, we love that line. That's one of, you know, our signature lines that Christ speaks. We, we love it because we know the whole story of the New Testament. But for Thomas and the disciples, I imagine that they may have been like, what kind of riddle is this? Fast forward just a couple of days after Jesus was tried and crucified, dead and buried, we don't know where Thomas was on that first resurrection Easter Sunday. But we know that he wasn't with the other disciples. So he didn't see Jesus when Jesus first appeared to them. And the text in John, it doesn't say this, but we can deduce it, that Jesus only appeared to the disciples for a short time and then he was gone. Because right after Jesus appears to the disciples, the text picks up with this. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
And I'd like to try to fill this in a little more. Because I'm sure the disciples didn't just say, oh yeah, we saw the Lord, you know, period. I'm sure there was a little bit more to that scene. I imagine that when the disciples saw Thomas, they rushed him all at once. We're like, Thomas, you won't believe what happened. Jesus is alive. He isn't dead anymore. You should have been there. We were in the room. You know, we were still devastated and sad and confused and frightened after Jesus had died. But then he just appeared right there in front of us. He showed us the wounds in his hands and on his sides. It was kind of gross, but it was kind of awesome at the same time. He's alive. It was amazing. You should have been there. Thomas's response. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe And then a full week goes by. I think sometimes we miss that because we read too fast in the passage because there's almost no break in the narrative. But if last Sunday was Easter, today would be one week from the day that Jesus had first appeared to his disciples. So we can assume that during that week there was no sign of Jesus among the disciples. Thomas had yet to see any glimpse of Jesus for himself. So can you imagine why Thomas may have been a little skeptical, a little hesitant? Maybe the disciples, you know, his friends imagined it all. If Jesus was alive, why wouldn't Jesus still be there with them? And logically, it doesn't make sense that Jesus could have come back from the dead. I mean, coming back from the dead doesn't just happen. That is not normal. And Jesus didn't just die of natural causes. He didn't get sick. He didn't have an unfortunate accident. He was nearly beaten to death. And then he was nailed to a cross and crucified. Surely, there's no coming back from that. It's not that his heart had just stopped and Peter ran over to start administering CPR to resuscitate him. He was crucified by Roman soldiers, died on a cross, and was laid in a tomb. To say that a crucified man resurrected from the dead would be outrageous. No doctor, no matter how great they are, could bring that person back from the dead. Not even Dumbledore could do that kind of wizard magic to bring that person back from the dead. This would truly be something that only God could do. And I think we would all agree on that point. Even non-Christians would probably have to admit that, if, that, yes, if a man had nearly been beat to death, crucified, dead, buried, if that person were to raise from the dead, it, only by an act of God could that happen. And I don't disagree. Without God, that would be an impossibility. So Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe this common human response. I shared this bit last week during our, our Easter sunrise service outside, and I feel like it's applicable now as well. The resurrection of Christ is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, and to be sure, the resurrection is a hard doctrine to wrap our minds around. As modern Western 
humans of the postmodern 21st century, we are empirical people, meaning we are convinced by things to which we can realistically observe. We want scientific method. We want research. We want to observe it, calculate it, dissect it, and observe it some more. Hearing about the resurrection of Jesus was hard even for Thomas to believe. So it should be no surprise to us that others, and even ourselves, may have struggled with the resurrection of Christ, or even our belief in God. The natural inclination of fallen humans is to refuse God. It should be no surprise to us that when people do not choose faith, because that is, in a sense, how we are wired. And the New Testament writers know this too. In the very first chapter of John's gospel, he writes, In Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And because of the consequence of sin, the world lives in darkness and ignorance to what should be obvious evidence of God's glory. The Apostle Paul lays this reality out for us in Romans 1. When he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for that of idols. John Calvin writes of how God's glory is revealed all around us in creation. All we have to do is just look around. He wrote, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see God. Indeed, his essence is incomprehensible. Hence, his divineness far escapes all human perception. But upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory, so clear and so prominent that even unlettered and stupid folk cannot plead the excuse of ignorance. Yet, in, that, in the first place, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. God's glory is on display. Calvin even goes on to describe how humans are the loftiest proof of the existence of God. This miracle of life that we share should be proof of God's glory. But even though God's glory is plain for all of us to see and know, sin obscures everything. It blinds us to the truth, to revelation, and to the glory of God. Seeing is believing. That's the motto of our world. But if you notice the phrasing in the bulletin of the sermon title today, it's, it's subtly different. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. What I mean by that, that it all starts with faith. And faith opens our eyes to God's truth and God's glory. 
the gift of faith activates within us a new perspective. Believing enlightens our minds to the knowledge of the grace and glory of God. So faith invites us, it compels us, and it empowers us to live in God's truth and light. It changes everything. Faith calls us, as Peter wrote, out of darkness and into God's wonderful light. Believing is seeing. To believe that God exists is to also to see his glory on display. It is also to believe that nothing would be impossible for God. And so the resurrection then is not some stretch of the imagination or Christian myth, but a reality of God's, God's glory and power and love on display. The resurrection of Christ is the confirmation that all of God's promises are true and the ultimate claim of God's faithfulness to us. It proclaims that the story is not over. Believing is seeing. But there's no doubt that seeing can certainly be a catalyst to believing. This was obviously was the effect for Thomas. He could not doubt any longer once he saw Jesus for himself. And he touched Jesus' wounds with his own hands. Seeing can certainly be a catalyst to believing. And I make that observation uh, for a very important reason this morning. And here it is. Do you want to know what the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ should be? I'll let you kind of ponder that. I'm going to ask that question again. Do you want to know what the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ should be? The answer? You and me. Us. The church. Christians around the globe. We should be for others the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ because we are resurrection people. We are the body of of Christ, the image of Christ. We should represent Christ to each and every person. But we have to face some hard questions. Are we living like resurrection people? Do we live like the resurrection of Christ has changed our lives? Does it mean something to us? Does it cause us to be different from someone who does not believe? Do we talk about our new life in Christ? Better yet, can people see the difference in us because of our new life in Christ? Many of you have probably heard that according to the latest Gallup poll, U.S. church membership for the first time ever has fallen below 50%. The decline in membership has been most influenced by the growing number of people described as nuns and duns. You probably heard those terminologies, but the nuns essentially being those who believe in God or some spiritual um, sense, at least to some degree, but they have no specific religious or denominational membership affiliation. The duns are those who, I guess most simply put, are just kind of done with church. But I have a hunch that the large majority of these people are not leaving the church due to hard doctrine. I think it's largely due to two things. The first reason I think people 
leave the church is due to frustration when we don't live up to our calling. And that, that includes both us and, and them. That, that's a big we. When we do not reflect the image of Christ, when we do not act like resurrection people, people get frustrated with the drama and the selfishness and leave. And the second reason I'm going to, uh, to label as boredom, and I don't mean so much because of boring sermons, those, pro- those probably don't help either, <laughs> but I mean boredom and the observation that when they look around and see their lives or our lives as not being different from anyone else's life, meaning non-Christians. If nothing is different, why bother? Why not just be consumed with sports and media and activities? You know, those would be much easier and more fun, even if they are empty. But here's the thing. I don't want us to be pessimistic about this. I want us to believe that there is something that we have, something incredible to share Friends, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. And so let us live our lives in response to the joy we have in Christ. In Christ, there is victory over sin and death. And I firmly believe there is an opportunity out beyond those doors. There is a great opportunity to bring people back into the fold. There is also a great opportunity to share with others who are in need of the same hope that we have in Christ. Our lives should be a testimony, a witness to the risen Christ. To end my sermon, I want to read from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I want to give you a little homework this week and encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. Um, You can read more than that if you want, but let's maybe make a note of it. And let's try to read those two chapters together this work and let those, th- those this week and let those words speak to you. Second Corinthians chapters four and five. And I'm not going to read all of those two chapters, but just let's listen to a portion of it because I feel or I think that Paul makes this similar point. Paul writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God for what we preach is not ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Friends, believing is seeing the glory of God through Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. So let's let others see that the resurrection of Christ is real in our lives, that they too may believe.
Amen. In this time of offering, as we have been doing, let this be a time of prayer and reflection for you. Before we gather for our scripture reading, let us gather in prayer. Lord, our world fills our day-to-day lives with tweets, with posts, sound bites, news clips, but our hearts are in need of something more. We need something real, something meaningful. And so, Lord, this morning we seek your truth that it would nourish our lives, and we ask that your spirit would illuminate your holy word for us in order that we would walk in your light. Amen. Our scripture text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The words of the Lord our God. Thanks be to God. Well, the other day I made a mistake, as I often do. Not just one, I make a lot of mistakes, but I made the mistake. I was flipping through the channels and I started watching a new show and I kind of got hooked on it. It's one of those deals. We've all done it, so, you know, don't judge me too much. But the new show for me this week has been Shark Tank. Does anybody know Shark Tank? Anyone? Maybe a few nods. Okay, the 9 o'clockers knew this show. I don't know if y'all know it. But anyway, I'll tell you about it. It's been around for a number of years. 
and I've never really watched it until this week. And if you don't know the show, there's usually five sharks, okay? And these aren't the ocean sea creature sharks. These are financial investors. Mark Cuban, uh, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, is usually one of the sharks. Well, in the show, entrepreneurial startups come in and they pitch their product, their, their business model, their ideas, and they're ultimately looking for one of the sharks, one of the investors, to partner with them in their company. They want to try to take, you know, their little company that they've started and they can't quite get to the next level and that's where the sharks come in. So they, so they pitch their ideas, they show them their products and they're trying to get their company to the next level. Well, the sharks, you know, they're the ones with the money. They're the ones wondering if they're going to invest in this venture. They evaluate the opportunity to see if they're interested in investing or not. And usually there, there's a time in the show, you know, they kind of get to know the person, but it all drills down to them facts. They want to know the numbers. They want to know with their own eyes if the product works, if the business model is there, and if there is a future for that business. And of course, they're looking at this in money-making terms. If they're going to invest in this, they're thinking about if this business or this product has a return on their investment. So I was thinking about this show. I mean, really, if any of us are going to buy into something, if we're going to invest ourselves in something, we want to see it work with our own eyes. We want to see the numbers. We want to see the vision, the facts. We want some proof and assurance that this thing is legit. If someone comes to us promoting, you know, some claim and that that something seems a little too good to be true, maybe, you know, just seems unlikely, we might say, prove it, right? Because we want to see some evidence. We want to see some proof. If our now middle-aged buddy says that he can still do a standing backflip like he did in high school, we, of course, look at him and say, okay, prove it. Of course, we have 911, you know, kind of on speed dial ready to go just in case, but if he's going to make that claim, he's going to have to prove it for us. Or if you ever had that friend in elementary school, you know, the kind of, kind of the weird one, but you like him because he's really your friend, and he says that he's going to eat a bug, you know, you're like, okay, prove it. Or if your own kid tells you that he or she, don't want to leave the girls out, is going to eat a bug, part of you is kind of interested in like, okay, let's kind of see what happens here. But hopefully there's another part of you that's like, let's not go down this road, child of mine. Seeing is believing. We've, we've heard that phrase. Seeing is believing. This idea is so common. We even have other phrases like it. I'll believe it when I, what? See it. I'll believe it when I see it. Typically we say this when, you know, we're much more skeptical about the outcome. You know, maybe it's a politician making grand uh, campaign promises. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, right? If your kid tells you they cleaned their room without being asked, my response to that is I'll believe it when I see it. If your great aunt Martha is finally going to make it to the family lunch on time this time, I'll believe it when I see it. If, hypothetically, the Texas Rangers say that they're going to win the World Series this year, I kind of sigh, say I'll believe it when I see it, but I still root for them anyways. 
We also have another phrase with this sort of negative connotation. That if someone refuses to believe something without proof, we might label them as a doubting Thomas. But now we're at this disciple, this apostle, Thomas. Poor guy. I do feel sorry for him and how history has kind of given him this label and remembered him. Because I feel bad for him because if any of the disciples were to get a negative type of nickname, you know, what about betraying Judas or denying Peter? Remember, Peter denied Christ three times during the trial and all that, but yet he's remembered as, well, Peter, Petros, the rock, when he certainly didn't act like the rock then. Poor doubting Thomas. He, Thomas doesn't get much airtime in the New Testament. Usually his name just kind of appears alongside the, other, the list of the other disciples. It's just kind of one of the other disciples that's there. But we do have him recorded a few times as speaking in the New Testament. One, one comment he makes when Lazarus dies. But interestingly, he also speaks up in John chapter 14. So we're in John chapter 20 with our passage, so just back up a few chapters. And in John chapter 14 here, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and he's giving them his kind of last words before he would be arrested and then tried and crucified and so on. Well, this particular part with Thomas occurs in the famous passage when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, here's our boy right here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the scene, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what laid ahead for him as well as for them. Jesus knew that troublesome waters were stirring and the storm was about to hit. Everything was about to come to this climactic moment. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe. Have faith. Faith is this key component. It's, it's faith as trust. Trust in me. It's faith as comfort when life's hard. Faith as strength. Faith as assurance. Faith as hope as we look forward. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then when Jesus continues, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And it's here that our beloved Thomas thinks about that, and he speaks up. He's like, actually, Jesus, come again? What are you talking about? What's happening? We just got to Jerusalem. I didn't know there was more traveling involved. Where's this house you're going to? Where are we supposed to go? 
Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Is there some, possibly some kind of roadmap that you can give us that we can look at and see where to go? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We love that verse. That's, that's one of our, you know, kind of verses that we hang on to in the New Testament. John 14, 6. We love that verse because we know the whole story of the New Testament. But I imagine for Thomas and the disciples, you know, they were like, what kind of riddle is this? Well, fast forward just a couple of days after Jesus was arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, and dead. We don't know where Thomas was on that first resurrection Easter Sunday, but we know that he wasn't with the other disciples. And so he didn't see Jesus when Jesus first appeared to them. And the text in John doesn't say this, but we can deduce that Jesus only appeared to the disciples for a short time and then was gone, because right after Jesus appears to them, the text picks up with this. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, or told him, we have seen the Lord. I like to try to fill in the scene a little more, because I'm sure they didn't just say, oh yeah, by the way, we saw the Lord. I mean, this was something pretty big, right? I imagine that when the disciples saw Thomas, they rushed to him and all at once were like, Thomas, you won't believe what happened. We saw Jesus. He's alive. He isn't dead. You should have been there. We were in the room, you know, we were, we were devastated, we were sad, we were confused, we didn't know what to do now that Jesus was dead, but then I swear he appeared right there in front of us. He is alive. He showed us the wounds in his hands and in his sides, and you know, it was kind of gross, but it was awesome at the same time. You should have been there. It was amazing. But Thomas's response, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side. I will not believe. And then a full week goes by. I think sometimes we, we miss that because we read too fast. There's almost no break in the narrative. But if last Sunday was Easter, like we celebrated, today would be a week from that day from when Jesus first appeared to his disciples. And from the text, we can assume that during that week, there was no sign of Jesus, at, yet, at least to his disciples there. And Thomas had yet to see any glimpse of Jesus himself. Is that hard to imagine why Thomas might be a little skeptical? Maybe the disciples, his friends, imagined it all. You know, if Jesus were alive, why wouldn't he be with, there with him? And then logically... It doesn't make sense that Jesus could come back from the dead. Coming back from the dead, that just doesn't happen. That is not normal. And Jesus didn't just die of natural causes. He didn't die because he was sick or had some kind of unfortunate accident. First, he was nearly beaten to death. And then he was nailed to a cross and crucified. There's no coming back from that. You know, it's not that his heart had just stopped and Peter rushed in and started doing CPR to resuscitate him. No, he was crucified by Roman soldiers. He died on the cross and he was laid in the tomb. 
to say that a crucified man resurrected from the dead would have just been outrageous. No doctor, no matter how great they are, could bring that person back from the dead. Not even Dumbledore and all his wizardly magic could bring that person back from the dead. This would truly be something that only God could do. I think we would all agree on that point. Even non-Christians would probably have to admit that if, in fact, this man was beaten, crucified, and dead, and buried, and if that person were to raise from the dead, it would only be by an act of God. And I don't disagree, because without God, that would be an impossibility. So we see Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe. Such a common human response. I shared this next bit last week during our um, Easter sunrise service, but I feel like it's applicable now as well. I said last week, the resurrection of Christ is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And to be sure, the resurrection is a hard doctrine to wrap our minds around. We as modern Western humans of the postmodern 21st century, we are empirical people meaning we are convinced by things to which we can realistically observe, things that we see. We want scientific method. We want research. We want to observe it, calculate it, dissect it, and then observe it some more. Hearing about the resurrection of Jesus was hard even for Thomas to believe. It should be no surprise to us that others or even ourselves have struggled to believe the resurrection of Christ, or even in the belief in God. The natural inclination of the fallen man is to refuse God, but it should be no surprise to us that people do not choose faith, because that is, in a sense, how we are wired. And the New Testament writers knew this. In the very first chapter of John's gospel, he writes, in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Because of the consequence of sin, the world lives in darkness and ignorance to what should be obvious evidence of God's glory. And it's this that Paul points out to us in Romans 1 when he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, indivisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made, so they are without excuse For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for that of idols. John Calvin writes of how God's glory is revealed all around us. All we have to do is just look around us And God's glory is there and should be clear to us. He wrote, Men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see God. Indeed, his essence is incomprehensible. Hence, his divineness far escapes all human perception. But upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory, so clear and so prominent that even unlettered and stupid folk cannot plead the excuse of ignorance. Yet in the first place, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe 
wherein you cannot discern at least some spark of his glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. Calvin goes on to describe how humans are the loftiest proof of the existence of God. The miracle that is life, that we all share, should be proof of God's glory. But even though God's glory is plain for all to see and know, the problem is sin. Sin obscures everything. It blinds us to the truth, to God's revelation, and to the glory of God. Seeing is believing. That's the world's motto. But if you notice in the bulletin, my phrasing of the sermon title today is subtly different. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. And what I mean by that is that it all starts with faith. And faith opens our eyes to God's truth and God's glory. The gift of faith activates within us a new perspective Believing enlightens our minds to the knowledge of the grace and glory of God. Faith invites us, it compels us, and it empowers us to live in God's light and truth. Faith calls us, as Peter wrote, out of darkness and into God's wonderful light. Believing is seeing. To believe that God exists is to also see God's glory on display. It is also to believe that nothing would be impossible for God. The resurrection then is not some stretch of the imagination or some Christian myth, but a reality of God's display of power and glory and love for each and every one of us. The resurrection of Christ is the confirmation that all the promises of God are true. It is the ultimate claim of God's faithfulness to us. It claims that the story is not over. Believing is seeing. But I do want to point out, there's no doubt that seeing can be a catalyst for believing. It obviously was effective for Thomas. How could he doubt any longer once he saw Jesus for himself? Once he placed his hands in Jesus' wounds, seeing can be a catalyst for believing. But I make this observation for a very important reason this morning. And here it is. Do you want to know what the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ should be? I'm going to let that marinate just a second. I'm going to read it again. Do you want to know what the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ should be? If people want proof of the resurrection of Christ, what's the greatest evidence for that? The answer is you and me. It's us. It's the church. It's Christians across the globe. We should be for others the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ because we are resurrection people. We are the body of Christ, the image of Christ for others. We are the light of Christ in this dark world, and we should represent Christ to each and every person. 
But in that realization, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Are we living like resurrection people? Do we live like the resurrection of Christ has changed our lives? Does it mean something to us? Does it cause us to be different from someone who does not believe? Do we talk about our new life in Christ? Does it inspire us? Or better yet, can others see a difference in us? Does our baptism mean anything? Many of you have probably heard um, that according to the latest Gallup poll, U.S. church membership has fallen for the first time ever below 50%. And the decline in membership has most, been most influenced by the growing number of people described as nuns and duns. You've, you've probably heard those terms before. The nuns being those who you know, believe in God or have you know, some kind of faith life, spiritual life to some degree, but have no specific religious or denominational membership affiliation. The duns are those who, I guess, simply put, are just kind of done with church. But I have a hunch that the large majority of those people are not leaving the church due to hard doctrine. I think it's largely due to two things. The first reason I think people leave the church is due to frustration when we don't live up to our calling. I mean we very big there, both them and us and me. When we do not reflect the image of Christ, when we do not act like resurrection people, people get frustrated with the drama, the selfishness, and they leave. The second reason I'm going to label as boredom, and I don't mean so much with boring sermons, though I know those don't help. I mean boredom in the observation that when they look around at their lives or our lives, do they really see if anything's different? Do we look the same as everyone else out there? Is there anything different about us? Because if there's not, why bother? If this place doesn't mean anything different for us, why bother? Why not just go and, you know, be consumed with sports and media and other activities? They're easier and more fun, even if they are empty. But here's the thing. I don't want us to be pessimistic about that stat and those labels. I want us to believe that we have something incredible to share as resurrection people. Friends, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Let us live our lives in response to the joy that we have in Christ. In Christ, there is victory over sin and death and darkness. And I firmly believe that there is an opportunity beyond those doors. There is a great opportunity, and I think a spiritual need out there to bring people back into the fold. There's a great opportunity to share with others who are in need of the same hope that we have in Christ. Our lives should be a testimony to the risen Christ. We are the evidence of the resurrection. To end my sermon, I want to read from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And along with this, you're getting some homework. We're all getting homework. I'm going to do this too. But I encourage you to read, even if you want to jot a note down, I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. 
And I want us all to read those chapters this week and let those words speak to you. Let them confront you. And I'm not going to read all the two chapters now, but I want to just have us listen to a portion of it because I think Paul is making this point. Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Friends, believing is seeing the glory of God through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. So let's let others see that the resurrection of Christ is real in our lives, that they too may believe. Amen. In this time of offering as we normally do, let this be a time of prayer and reflection of both talking to God, what's on your mind, what's on your heart, and allowing God to speak to you as well.